softens our hearts and expresses thanksgiving and appreciation, that's not the high point. When we give to you that you can use our gifts for your glory, that's not the high point. The high point of our worship is opening your revealed word and seeing you alive and active in human history and how we can have the Holy Spirit take that and to shape us and to mold us into the people that you want us to be. And so, Father, that is what we ask this morning as we come to your word, that we can be able to see you in all, your, all of your glories and be changed by it from our time within his pages. And so speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, please open up to Genesis chapter 47. Genesis chapter 47. And we're in the midst of the story of Joseph, a story that I wanted to sort of begin to lay a foundation of God's providence, and I got um, wrapped up in the details of the story of Joseph. And so we've been saying since the beginning of looking at Joseph that it really isn't a story about Joseph, because Joseph's story is actually a part of Jacob's story on how God will bring Judah into preeminence within the family. And so it is a story about the Hebrew people telling them that God is always providentially working in the lives of his people to bring about his plan and his glory. And so the last time that we first saw Jacob at the beginning of chapter 46, we saw that Jacob was stunned to hear the news that his son Joseph was still alive and that his heart yearned to see him again and how he was going to pick up the entire family with all of these animals and, and all of their property and to go down into Egypt. But yet last time he stopped at Beersheba to worship the Lord, wanting to, to finally be completely faithful to him and not displease the Lord. And the Lord answered his prayer and his heart was satisfied because God told him within his heart that it was okay for him to bring his family down to Egypt to see his son. And so as we begin to review part of the end of, of chapter 46 and then look at chapter 47, we have four scenes. We see Jacob traveling to, to Egypt and being re reunited with his son. We see Joseph and his family on how he prepares them. We see Jacob meeting Pharaoh. And then we get to see Joseph administering his skills to the Egyptian people. And so within chapter 46, it is a story that shows us Jacob's obedient heart to the Lord, wanting to do what was pleasing to him. But towards the end of chapter 46 and throughout chapter 47, it's not about Jacob's obedience anymore. Because through these four scenes, as we shall see, I wasn't quite sure how they were sort of connected. Because as we already know that within the Old Testament and the stories that we have there, they're not just a random set of stories given to us. They're there for a purpose. And at first, I wasn't quite sure how to handle things, but then I begin to see it's more centering how God is faithful in bringing out the promises that he has already been made. 
And within these verses that we shall be looking at, there are seven details that I want to focus on how God is faithful to keep the promises that he has made to his people. Because they are about to go into a strange land for 400 years, go into bondage in that strange land, and get to a place to think that God doesn't hear their prayers any longer. Because 400 years, five, six generations is a long time. And so before they go, God wants to reiterate to his people that while they're in bondage, that he is faithful to keep his promises. And we need to be reminded of that same thing. God is faithful. He has given us promises from page one of, of Genesis to the end of the book of Revelation. There are promises galore. And we need to be reminded that no matter where we are in our life, no matter how hard the struggles are, no matter where we don't know where to turn, that God is faithful. We are not alone. He is there to empower us. He is there to direct us, even when we feel like that there's nowhere for us to turn, nowhere for us to get our strength. But he is there. And so within these verses, I'm going to look at those seven different items to see that God is faithful. And to hopefully put in your own heart and to remind your heart the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. And so look at um, the end of, of, of chapter 46. We begin to see that there is an emotional reunion that Jacob have, has with Joseph. In verses 29 and 30, there's that great reunion. Joseph is there after 17 years of not of being away from his family, and he just wails, he just cries, he just hugs his father until it just all, all is gone. He is thrilled. And so we get to see that. And so that is really at the heart of the very first principle on how God is faithful. Because going back to God reinforcing the fact that it was okay for Jacob to go to Egypt, that God keeps his promises by um, uh, uniting Jacob and Joseph together. God tells Jacob, it's okay to go, and God fulfills that promise. He gets there. He sees his son. It's an emotional aspect to where out of years of grieving and sorrow, where Jacob refused any kind of comfort, his heart is glad. His heart is satisfied. His heart is full. That if he were to die right now, that that, that would be fine. And so we get to see that, as we saw last time, that his heart is filled because of the reunion. God is faithful to keep his promises. And then there's a second element that we see in, in, um, as um, chapter 46 ends, that Joseph then begins to prepare his family. Uh, from verses 31 to 46 to verse 6 in chapter 47. And in this section, we see the second principle that is laid out, I believe, for us. That God will keep his promises by providing for his people while they are in Egypt. And so Joseph prepares his family on what to say if anyone asks them why, they're, why they are there. Because as you know and remember, there's a great famine in the land. They had seven years, Egypt, to prepare, and they had great 
prosperity for these seven years of famine. And so God, is, God has brought them there to, um, to sort of wade through the end of the famine. And so Joseph wanted to prepare his brothers by giving the impression that they are not there to sponge off the Egyptian people or to be a threat to them. And as we said the last time, it was easy to, to have this large clan, about, about 70 men together, and there to just sort of use the Egyptian people, the Egyptian government, while there is severe famine elsewhere. And so they wanted to project that they are there because of the famine, and they weren't going to be a liability or a threat. And so to the Egyptian people, they just saw shepherds as loathsome. And so Joseph says, in which they were, if anyone were to ask you, tell them that you're a shepherd. Because shepherds were sort of viewed as unschooled, unskilled. Egyptians built great cities. They just lived in tents. They had really no place to stay. They weren't sophisticated. They didn't know the Egyptian language. They were just there, and they had an air about them that was so different from the Egyptian culture. And so they were viewed as lonesome. And so if they were to ask, just, just tell them that they were just temporarily there until they were to leave. And so we, we saw last time that God moves in Pharaoh's heart that when Pharaoh hears that Joseph's family is still alive, he welcomes them. Bring your family down. And he accepts them. And he, he will provide for them. And that's an uh, amazing fact because we know the Pharaoh of Moses' time. But we sort of forget here during Joseph's time, Joseph was the prime minister. Pharaoh appreciated Joseph and what he accomplished. And he is thrilled to hear that someone in Joseph's family is there and he wanted to provide for them. So he invites the Hebrews to Egypt. And that's key. The Hebrews came to Egypt through an invitation through Pharaoh. But something changes by the time you get to Exodus chapter 1 to where they are now in bondage. They were no longer welcome. They were now um, in bondage to them. But we'll see more about that as the book of Genesis unfolds. And so God provides an, in, an invitation for them. And so look at verse 17 of, of chapter 46. Uh, we see this great invitation. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beast, go to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. And so this invitation included to stay in the best of the land, the best land for livestock, the best land to sort of live and essentially be, uh, be separated. There's a map of, of, of Goshen that I think will, will get put up to where it's separated really at the northern tip of Egypt where the Nile sort of separates, that's the land of Goshen. It's green, it's fertile, it's the best place to be um, having livestock, but yet the Egyptians didn't want to live there. They wanted to be in the cities. They were all to, to the south. 
So God was beginning to prepare for his people to be separate from the Egyptians so they wouldn't be assimilated into the culture because that's where the shepherds go. And so they were there, and God was preparing the best of the land. And then at the beginning of chapter 47, we see Pharaoh meeting Jacob's family. And we're going to be unfolding chapter 47 as we go. And it's a very important section because through it all, through all the different events, God continues to show his people that he keeps his promises. And so look at verse 1. We find this. Then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have, they have come out of Canaan, the land of Canaan, and behold, they are in the land of Goshen. And so he tells Pharaoh, my family is here. Because normally for kings or pharaohs, they could change their mind. And so he wanted to make sure that they had final permission from Pharaoh to, to stay there. And so he brings it up. Pharaoh, you wanted them here? They are here. And so there was no guarantee that, that Pharaoh wouldn't, wouldn't, um, wouldn't change his mind or put some extra conditions on it because he's Pharaoh. That's what they could do. And so the family begins to meet with Pharaoh. And so look at verse 2. And so Joseph, he takes five men, five men from among his brothers, and presented them to Pharaoh. And so, though we're not uh, sure which of the five, they were probably the oldest ones, the, um, the eldest ones, the ones that sort of looked probably more stately, maybe. And so, we're not told which ones, but I'm sure that they were wearing the best clothes. They probably um, they probably were just awestruck at the wealth and opulence that Pharaoh's quarters and surroundings had than where Joseph was pre previously sad. Because Joseph's um, surroundings were, were probably very nice. But Pharaoh, however the niceness of Egypt would have been, that would have surrounded Pharaoh's uh, living space. And so they are there, and Joseph prevents, um, presents his five brothers. And so here they are, the shepherds, being presented to the most powerful man in the world at that time. And then in verse 3, Pharaoh is going to ask them a question. This is a very simple question. What is your occupation? So, hi, what do you do? And they answered exactly the way that Joseph tells them. Because normally with family, you, you tell them things and they may not always do what you think. But, but they do. And verse 3 goes on, and they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, we and our fathers. And it's interesting because there's a, a sense of respect and cur courtesy that they give to Pharaoh. Your servants are shepherds. We both and our fathers. That word servant is going to be used three different times within this one passage. And so there's an air of respectfulness. Because they could have just snarled at this pagan, pagan king and said, you know what, yeah, thanks. But they didn't. They were very respectful. And then they go on in verse 4 as the story unfolds. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land. 
That word sojourn means temporary aliens. And so they said, we have come not to be permanent residents, but we, we have come to be here for as long as we are here for. For there is no pastor for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And so they tell Pharaoh, we're here in our livestock because if we weren't here, we, we would die and our livestock would die. And so then they ask, going on with verse 4, Now therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. And so if, you, if you're a parent, something stands out in that statement. They use the magic word, please. Can you please let your servants live in the land of Goshen? There's that air of respect and courtesy that they're there in front of this mighty ruler. And so we're, uh, they're thankful and they are respectful. And so they formally ask, can we stay? And so they go on to say that uh, we are at your disposal. We are your servants. And so once again, they're underscoring the fact that they're not a threat, they're not a liability, but yet they are there uh, during the time in which they are there. It's in interesting to note because um, throughout this one um, aspect of the passage, we keep seeing the aspect of the word servant. It's a, it's a theme throughout the Old Testament and even entering into the Gospels of, not servant, uh, of the word shepherd, that we are shepherds. Our father and our fathers, it's in our history, it's in our DNA, that's what we do. We are shepherds. And this theme is found throughout the Old Testament. We all know uh, Psalm 23. Um, Psalm 23, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There is that shepherd thing that underscores that God is the shepherd of his people. We see that in, in uh, Isaiah. God is the shepherd. He is there. He is the provider. He's the protector. But it's more than that. Jacob is a shepherd for Laban before, uh, before he marries. Moses is a shepherd for 40 years. David is a shepherd before becoming king of Israel. And even when the Messiah comes as a babe, the angels announce to the shepherds that the king, that the Messiah has arrived. And so the theme of, of a shepherd is found throughout. And I think that it's one of those things that as you begin to read the Old Testament, you begin to see that it's there um, well, with no um, coincidence. It's there for a reason, to underscore the fact that God is the shepherd of his people. And so we get to see that what is your occupation? We're shepherds and we're at your disposal. Can we please stay? And then in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 47, we get to see the next, the next aspect of the story unfold. Share, um, Pharaoh is going to respond to Joseph's brothers. And so look at verse 5. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. And so Pharaoh makes his resources available to them. And so God is going to be using Pharaoh to provide for his people in a strange new land. 
Pharaoh invites them. Pharaoh welcomes them. He gives them a land for as long as they stay. And so they're not to just be there, but it's a welcoming aspect. But yet he goes on. He says, be here. Egypt is at your disposal, but I want you to settle your father and your brothers in the best land and let them live in the land of Goshen. He was saying that while you are here, I want you to settle in the land. I want you to park and make this your residence. Now that's different from where where they were before, from Abraham. They were nomads. They went from one place to another place to another place. They were used to traveling. They were used to picking up everything and moving it somewhere else. But Pharaoh was saying, I want you to come and to settle. And so God has promised them a land, though the land in which they were in was not the promised land, but it was going to be a land that God was going to use to help them grow in numbers, to become a great nation, to fulfill the the covenant that God has made with them. And so the only land that they owned was a burial plot in the land of Canaan. That's where Abraham was buried, and Sarah was buried, and Isaac was buried. And so that's all they had was a burial plot. They didn't possess the land. They were just in the land. And so then Pharaoh goes on. Not only did he say, I want you to settle, not only is the land of Egypt at your disposal, but he he goes on to say the next part of the verse, I'm going to give you a job. Look, look, look what it says. And if you know any capable, capable men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. I want you to be in, in charge of the royal flocks, the royal livestock, all my animals and things. I want, if there's anybody capable, which they all were, I want them to be in charge. Pharaoh gave them a job. He gave them a land, he gave them, he gave them a job, and uh, he's going to be providing for them food. And so they were there. They were welcomed. They were invited. And so we get to see that God was working within the lives of his people to provide for them. And so God is keeping his promises to his people while they were outside of the land. God is providing. Because normally, uh, with a, a leader of a different con- country, they may be welcoming, but they're not, they're not that welcoming. You guys are a strange people in a strange land. I don't know you. All he knew was Joseph. But he rolls out the red carpet for them, which shows that God, to his people, was providing and keeping his promises to them. But the next part of the passage is a very important passage in verses 7 through 12 where Pharaoh meets Jacob. And this is the first of many contrasts that we find mentioned in this chapter. And it's a, a very important aspect to where you have, on one hand, Pharaoh, the leader of the not-so-free world, meeting the up-and-coming nation leader of the people of God. And so Egypt was the world power at at the time. And Jacob, he was a father of 12 sons and their family, and that's about it. They really didn't stand out in in the crowd too much. 
And so, but from a different perspective, you had two men, not just mere men, but two representatives of two great nations coming together. And it's, it's interesting because back in chapter, in verse 3 of chapter 46, God is telling Jacob that don't be afraid to go down to Egypt for I will make you a great nation there. And so they are there with purpose to be provided for, but to become a great nation themselves. And so here we have two leaders coming together and meeting. It's amazing to think that in in the 400 years that um, the Hebrews were down in Egypt, they would become more than two million people in population. And so if, you, if we had the opportunity to look at um, the Exodus chapter 1, there were so many of them that Egypt was fearful that they would rise up and overthrow the Egyptian government. That's why they kept them in bondage. And so here we have two leaders coming together. And so look at verse 7. We find this. Then Joseph brought his father... Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh. And so that's a interesting story because Jacob was in the room when the four brothers probably were um, presented. And then Joseph probably goes, gets his father. We know um, later on as the story unfolds, Jacob is walking with, with the cane and Joseph is probably there with him, probably helping him on one side um, go before Pharaoh. And so he is there. And he brings his father, and it's very important, the next part of verse 7, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Immediately, Jacob meets Pharaoh, and he gives Pharaoh a blessing. Now, at first observation, one may not think that's not such a big deal, but it's a huge deal. It's huge very big. One would assume that usually it would be Pharaoh blessing Jacob. Because normally, uh, just an average person doesn't go up to someone famous or someone powerful and blesses them. It really would be out, out of place. The one, the most prominent person, the most um, a powerful person, the one that has the most prestige would be the one doing the blessing. But that's not what we have here. We have a blessing being given by Jacob to Pharaoh. And so we begin to see the third area in which God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises by demonstrating his covenantal faithfulness to him, uh, to, um, to their people. God is going to be faithful to the covenant that he made with his people, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, reiterated in chapter 15, reiterated in chapter 17, and then in in Isaac's life and Jacob's life where it's unfolded again, that I will give you a land, a seed, and a blessing. That goes back to Genesis chapter 12, and we get to see this being brought out. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse you. And all your families of the earth will be blessed. And so we, we begin to see that God is going to keep his promises by demonstrating that the promises his, that are found in the covenant, 
he will maintain and be faithful to them. And so within this promise in Genesis chapter 12, talks about that God's people will be a blessing to the nations. And this is a glimpse of it because Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And so the, promise, uh, the ultimate blessing will come about through the promised one, uh, Christ coming and, and bless all the nations. But here we have that little bit of glimpse of Jacob blessing the nation of Israel because of Pharaoh's soft heart. Pharaoh was welcoming. He extended everything that he could to them. And Jacob blesses them for his openness. It's a fulfillment of the promise. You bless God's people, God will, God will bless you. And as the story begins to unfold, we're not told exactly what this blessing was outside of Jacob just making it a blessing. He just sort of states that Jacob blessed it. But I want you to turn in, in, in your Bible to Genesis chapter 48. We get a glimpse of what Jacob's blessing is all about. Because Jacob is going, going to bless um, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he's going to be blessing then in chapter 49 his 12 sons before he dies. And here we have Jacob blessing Ephraim and Manasseh. Look at verse 20. We find this. And he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And the key that I, I just want to show there, that God is a part of how he blesses. It's just what he does. If you were, if you were to go to chapter 49, where Jacob blesses his sons, um, God is a part of the, um, of, of the blessing throughout the passage. That God is going to work. He, he extends God's best in, in what he says. And so Yahweh God must have been a part of the blessing that he gives to Pharaoh. And so he is, he is actually giving a testimony to Pharaoh about Yahweh God, that he is a sovereign one, that he is the one who is in control, that all good things come from him. And so both physically and spiritually, he, he brings about the desire for God to bless Pharaoh and to Egypt. And not only once, but there's a double blessing, because at the end of verse 10, he blesses them again. And so before he leaves, he blesses Pharaoh. And so we get to see that this blessing is very important, because there's a spiritual principle that is underscored here that we need to uh, be reminded of, that you have two leaders, but the two leaders aren't equal in God's sight. There's a spiritual component. There's the, the physical component that Pharaoh's the leader of the known world. That's just what it is. But there's a spiritual component to where he blesses Pharaoh and by the God of Israel. I want you to sort of look at Hebrews chapter 7. Because the near context would be going to Genesis chapter 14. Where we have the greater blessing the lesser. But here in Genesis chapter 7, we begin to get an understanding of Hebrews chapter 7, excuse me, of the greater blessing, the lesser. 
And the author of the book of Hebrews is citing uh, Genesis chapter 14, where there's uh, Melchizedek. He's the king priest, and he provides a blessing to Abraham and provides uh, physical items to him and his family. And so here we have in, in chapter 7, look at verse 4. It says, now, observe how great this man, uh, Mal, Melchizedek, was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his choicest spoils. So Abraham is there. He gives him a tithe. He, he gives him money. Jump down to verse 6. But the one whose genealogy is not traced, that's the lineage for Melchizedek, traced from them, collected a tenth from Abraham, and blessed the one who had the promises. So Abraham was the one that has the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So Melchizedek here is a type of Christ. He brings about provision. He brings about blessing. And the author of the book of Hebrews is saying that what is happening in Genesis chapter 14 is the spiritual principle that the greater characteristic, the greater person in God's sight, is the one who does the blessing to the lesser one. So in Genesis chapter 14, the greater is Melchizedek, and he brings about a blessing for God to work in the life of Abraham, who received the promise because he was faithful to present a tithe to him. And so going back to our passage, we have two men, Jacob. There's 70 of them. You have the leader of the known world. But in God's eye, who is the greater person? The patriarch, uh, Jacob, whose, whose, uh, whose seed, whose descendants will become a great nation while they are in Egypt? Or is it Pharaoh, just a world leader at the time, who will come and go? And so the greater is blessing the lesser here. And so in God's eyes, Israel and Jacob has the, um, has the higher position for him to bring about a blessing. And so that's a reminder to us that while we live in this world, we know that we're aliens and strangers. We know that everything that takes place is not, um, is not all that there is. Um, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20 talks about how we're ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is a representative of a government. And so we represent Christ in a lost world. In some ways, in comparison to the world around us, we hold a higher position than the highest powerful person in the world, in God's eyes. And so... When a person sees us, they should be able to see Christ alive in our life. They should be able to uh, see the actions that we do. They are Christ-like. We are to be living Christ with Christ-likeness. We're to have on display his love and forgiveness and patience and righteousness because we represent God's kingdom here on the earth. And so with that spiritual principle, it, it puts a burden with us to be living for Christ. 
And so here, Jacob brings about a blessing to Pharaoh because of his spiritual position that he has. It's interesting because in verse 8, we get to see that the conversation continues from that one blessing because Pharaoh is going to ask Jacob a question. And for us, it may seem kind of odd because he meets Pharaoh, he, um, uh, Jacob blesses him, and Pharaoh immediately says to Jacob, how many years have you lived? I'm not sure if Jacob just sort of looked old, acted old, just sort of walked up like a, uh, a senior would, but he was curious. He's sort of looking uh, in, at him and thinking to himself, boy, this guy has a lot of miles um, on him. I wonder how old he actually is. It's one of those questions that men should never ask women. Just don't do it because that's not a good thing. But Pharaoh does. How old are you? And I think it's more than just his physical appearance. But he knew that he was old, but with that old life comes wisdom and experience and being able to survive through a lot of hardship. So he was, he was um, trying to ascertain the life lessons that Jacob had. And in 21 Hebrew words, Jacob is going to respond to Pharaoh in a very profound way. And look what he says in verse 9. And so Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. So yes, Jacob was 130 years old. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years of my fathers um, lived during the days of their sojourning. It's a very interesting response. Pharaoh asks him essentially, how old are you? And he says, well, I'm 130 years old. So that alone sort of stands out, but he, but he qualifies it. He says that these 130 years are actually few in number. To us, that would be a 130 years. That's old. But in comparison, though, to his grandfather, Abraham, Abraham lived to be 175 years old. His father, Isaac, he lived to be 180 years old. So in comparison to his forefathers, he's a drop in a bucket. He, he, he would have to um, live uh, another 50 years just to um, meet his father's age. So in his mind, there, his years are few in comparison to them. But yet there's another aspect going on here. Not just does he view his, his years as few, but also he, he qualifies them by saying that these few years... They have been unpleasant in my life. That's interesting. Jacob looks at his life and he says, for the most part, they've been very unpleasant years. That word unpleasant there means evil or unhappy or miserable or difficult. You fill in the blank, Jacob would probably say, yep, they're all four. They were evil years. They were miserable years. They were years that were difficult. Joy, there no joy. And so he was, I think, essentially a, a glass half empty kind of guy. He was just, through the situations that he experienced in his life, he was negative. Yeah, for the most part, 
they, they were bad. They were, they were really bad. And most of the things, if you go back to read Jacob's life, he brought those experiences onto himself. Even before his, he was born, he was wrestling with his brother in his mother's womb. Um, his, his, uh, his name meant surplanter, meaning that he was associated with trickery and deception. His situation with his father-in-law, his father-in-law deceived him, and he married the other woman. He didn't want her, he wanted he wanted the other one. So he had to work another seven years to get the one he actually loved. He was, um, he was um, on the run for his life from his own brother Esau, where he despaired. Then his beloved wife Rachel died, mourned. Then his beloved son died, supposedly. He mourned. And so after years of sorrow, after years of struggle, after years of misery, many things he brought upon himself or they have, they have happened to him. And so in Jacob's life, he may be thinking that he's ready to kick the bucket. You know, in comparison to my, my father and my grandfather, my years are few. They've been miserable times. But in God's grace, he's going to live another 17 years. And we're going to see that next time that we, that we open things up. But these last 17 years are going to be different. And the difference is he's walking with God. His heart is currently satisfied with, with the Lord. There's a peace, there's a contentment that after all those hardships, that his eyes was focused on the proper perspective. It's exactly what Hebrews chapter 12 in the first two verses says it says let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith and so his eyes are now focused on the proper the proper perspective he is there basking in the joy that God is providing for his people, that God is faithful, that God has worked and underscored that they are in a foreign land for a reason. But yet it doesn't stop there. I want you to um, go back to verse 9, and there are two words that stand out in my mind of how he views his life. More than just that they are few, and more than just they're unpleasant. He uses the word sojourning. Now, in the English, we don't use that word all too often. So if we were to take a poll, we may have a difficult time coming up with a definition. But that word sojourning could be translated as a, a pilgrimage or a traveler. And so Joseph saw his life and the lives of his father as one of a pilgrimage, that they were always moving from one place to another with no present place to call their home. And so on one hand, yes, that was true. With Abraham, he saw his life as one of a sojourning. And Isaac, he saw his life as one as a sojourning. They were in the promised land, but they didn't possess the land. They were moving from one place to another place. But that's the physical component. 
I think that word has a lot more going on as he explains it to Pharaoh. I think there's a spiritual aspect to it. How do I know? Well, turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 in verses 13 and 16. Because they were relegated to wander. They were unsettled. Essentially, they were homeless. Though they were promised an, an inheritance in the land, they never possessed the land. And now they're in a strange land. But if you look at that great hall of faith, there's more going on in Abraham's mind than just um, possessing a land. There's a future aspect, that there's a greater land. And look at verse 13, Hebrews chapter 11. It says, all these died in faith. Well, who are they? All, the, all these? Abel, Enoch, and Noah, and Abraham, and Sarah. So they had a faith. Um, they died in faith without receiving the promises. So they were promised by God something, but they never actually got it yet. What is this? But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers in exiles on earth. There's that spiritual component. There is more than just the here and now. There's a future aspect. Verse 14, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they have seen, if they have been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But in verse 16, but as it is, they desired a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God was not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a city for them. Huh. As Jacob is telling his testimony to the Lord, my years are few, they were difficult, but they were part of my sojourning. All that I experience here now on earth isn't all there is. There is something more. There is something better. I am just sort of passing through um, all of the things in this one life. Peter said the, the same thing back in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 when we studied that with, with Pastor Joey. As the letter begins to open, Peter writes his letter to those who are aliens, who those who are scattered. Not only was the, uh, there was a physical aspect that they were aliens in a foreign land and they were scattered throughout, but there's a spiritual aspect that they were aliens in this world. And I think that we need to be reminded that this world is not our primary home. We may at times hang on with all that we can to everything that we have, but there's a future aspect. There should be a yearning for us to one day be with Christ, to be with his people, to be in a place where there's no more hardship and no more sorrow. Because we're citizens of God's kingdom. And sometimes we just sort of hang on and prepare, and prepare for a long stay. I remember when I first got saved, um, I heard this song, This World Is Not My Home. And the word sort of goes this way. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. That's the believer's hope. 
It's not this earth and, and getting everything that we can about it. It's the passing on the eternal treasures to heaven by what we do here. And so all of the hardships and struggles that we go through in this life isn't all that there is. It's living within, within eternal perspective. That should be our focus in the here and now. I like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 4. It sort of puts all these sort of components together. Paul writes this, that therefore we do not lose heart, but though the outer man is decaying, Trust it, I feel that every day. The outer man is decaying, yet the inner man is being renewed when? Day by day. For the momentary light of affliction, that's the hardship. That's the struggles that we go to. In the light of eternity, they're, they're momentary. They come, they go. To us, it takes a long time. But they're momentary. They're light in the light of eternity. It's producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we yet look not at the things which are seen in this world, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So I believe as Abraham is telling his testimony to Pharaoh, he's saying, my years are few. They've been hard. But, they're so, but they've been years of sojourning. There are more, there's more going on than what this earth has to say. And we need to live with that same perspective by seeking the things above and not on the things of this earth. Because time is going. Let's, let's, let's keep going. There's a fourth area, and these last ones will go quickly. The fourth area in which God keeps his promise comes in the next part of verse, verses 11 and 12, by God keeping his promises by providing for Jacob's family. Not only um, we, we've been told that he will, but we actually see the reality of it. Look at verse 11. So Jacob settled with his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in, in the land, a place to call their own. And so, first of all, we, Joseph is provided a place to settle. They settled in the land, the best land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had ordered. While they were there, guess what? It was their possession. They could, it couldn't be taken away because Pharaoh gave it to them. That was a big deal. When they were sojourning back in Canaan, Somebody else owned the land. They could be told, can you move on, take your smelly animals with you? But they couldn't be told there. And so Joseph provided a place, and they settled. But secondly, in verse 12, Joseph provided food. Joseph provided his father and his brother all and all his father's household with food according to the little ones. It's a time of great famine. There's only so much food to go around, though Joseph helped prepare for it, so it, uh, there would be enough to last the seven years. But, gave out, but they gave out food according to the family's needs. You had more people, you got more food. And so God was there providing through Joseph the food that they needed. And so they were there, they were in the land, they were settled, they were having their needs met. They, got, they had a job to tend to Pharaoh's animals. And so during a time of great struggle, 
they were provided for. And so it was a sign to God's people that God will keep his promises by providing for them. We need to be reminded of that, especially when sometimes that next bill comes in and your car blows up. And it's like, all right, easy come, easy go, but blessed be the name of the Lord. It's Lord's money anyway. So God will provide. And so we need to be reminded that. But in verses 13 through 19, we get to see now Joseph and the Egyptians. Joseph is going to um, show his administrative skills, if you would, to the Egyptian people in in the midst of the famine. And so look at verse 13. And now there was no food in all the land. So it's about year two still about year two in the famine, and there's five years to go, and the famine went from severe, and now this verse says, to very severe. So that are resulting in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of famine. And so the seven years of great prosperity, they were a distant memory. They forgot about those years. All of the wealth and all the prosperity that the people had in in Egypt... It was gone. And so they began to run out of money. They were in the midst of a great crisis. And we begin to see the second great contrast that chapter 47 underscores. Not only did we have two great men coming together, they were contrasting men, but we have two great nations coming together going in different ways. And in verses, beginning in verse 13 and following, we get to see Egypt's downhill spiral. They were beginning to do a downhill spiral while Israel and his, and his people began to rise in prosperity because all of their needs were being provided for. Look at verse 14. We get to see Egypt's decline. And Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they had brought. And Joseph bought the money, brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And so they had money, but the money ran out. And in verse uh, 15, now what? Now what are they going to do? And so uh, when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, and all the Egyptians came to Joseph saying, give us food. We shall die for our money is gone. And so the people are crying out in Egypt, what are we going to do now? We have no more money. Now, at this time, they were not used to a nanny state. They just, the government giving out money willy-nilly just to, just to give it to people. But there was an aspect to where that they would do anything to help feed their family. And that's the key. And Joseph began to say, well, you got livestock? Yeah, we, we have animals. Give me your, your livestock and I will exchange them for food. And so beginning in verses 16 and following, they began to give their more expensive livestock, and then it went down to their less expensive livestock. And so they began to exchange their livestock for food until the livestock were gone. What now? Well, in in, in verse 18, it's probably somewhere around year three, and when that year was ended, they came to him the next year saying, We will not hide from my Lord that all our money is spent. And the cattle are are, are my Lord's, and there's nothing left for my Lord except our bodies 
in our lands. And then in verse 19, why shall we die before our eyes, both we and our lands, by us in our lands for food, and our lands shall be and our lands will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So all they had left, they had nothing left. No more money, no more livestock. We just have our lives, and we, uh, and we, uh, and we have our land. We're going to exchange it to Pharaoh. And so essentially they become slaves. And so that's what Joseph does. Joseph is going to say, all right, you are going to provide for yourself while you also provide to Pharaoh. In verses 23 and 24, we find an income tax. All right, everything that you own belongs to Pharaoh, and 20% of it is going to go to Pharaoh. But you shall work on the lands. And it's interesting because some commentators here, they talk about... um, that Joseph is somehow endorsing slavery. But it's not slavery per se. What it is, it's more like the feudal system that Europe had. There was the lord of the manor, you know, the lord of the manor, and he owned the land, and he would have tenants come, and they would work the land, and they would, uh, they would uh, pay rent. Here, um, they're exchanging everything for food. And so they were, um, they were obligated to Pharaoh to produce. But they, um, they were spared um, from dying. And they were happy to do it. And so in verse 25, we get to see this. And they said, you have saved our lives to Joseph. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord that we may be Pharaoh's slaves. And so here we have a picture of Egypt's decline. Great wealth to because of circumstances, the the people of Egypt are now enslaved to Pharaoh. But the contrast here is Israel is greatly being blessed by God. And that's where we get the sixth area of God's promises. God will keep his promises by growing the people. Look at verse 27. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt and in Goshen, and they acquired property in it, and they were fruitful and became very Numerous. The people started to have children, and they became very, very numerous. So God keeps his promises by making them into a great nation. But yet there's a seventh area I, I, I want to sort of pull all our thoughts together as we, as we begin to close. The seventh area in which God keeps his promise is even in death. God will keep his promises to his people even in death. And in verses 28 through 31, we get to see that um, Jacob is going to live another 17 years. But he doesn't want his body to be buried in Egypt. Why? Because it's not the promised land. He yearned to be back home, but he didn't, he didn't want his body to be there, which was going to be a symbol for his people that God would provide. And so he makes Joseph swear that he would have his body be taken from Egypt and be buried in the family plot. That's why at the end of verse 31, Israel was satisfied and he bowed to worship at the head of the bed. 
And so he longed for God to, um, to fulfill the promise that God has made to return to the promised land, and God is going to fulfill that promise. And so throughout this one chapter, we, we get to see that the family are now together. God keeps his promises, that they, the family is now protected. They're provided for. They're blessed. They're not going to struggle in the midst of this immense um, disaster that is taking place. And so God is reinforcing with his people that he keeps his promises. And so chapter 47 sort of comes together in that way to where now it's our response to what we have heard. How do we trust in God's promises? For those who don't know Christ as their Savior, God will keep his promise by providing salvation if you repent from your sin and turn, turn to him, he will give you a cleansing of all the sin and all the, and, uh, and, and all the guilt that you may have. And he will provide a salvation to make you clean, to make you new, to make you a new creature. That he can give you a confidence to know that if you were to die tonight, where you would go. It's a promise. So if you have never placed your faith in Christ, you need to get that resolved. Because the only promise else that you have is that God will judge you of your sin on Judgment Day. You can make this world your Egypt, but so what? One day you will stand before him. And so God will keep his promise in providing salvation. But secondly, once you come to Christ, God will keep his promise in keeping your salvation. He will give you the Holy Spirit as a down payment. He will begin to make you more like Christ. When you fall down, he will, he will pick you up. He will empower you when you feel weak. You don't have to go through life and feel abandoned because he will always be there. And so God will help grow you and empower you in your walk with him. And so we need to be reminded of his promises so we can stand firm in our faith and unshakable because those difficult times will come. And I'm sure each one of us can tell stories. If you knew my life, they're hard. And probably because I've done it to myself. But yet, let me tell you about the sojourning that God has done in my life to change that. So we come and prepare ourselves for the table at this time. And it's, on one hand, a celebration for God's people. So if you know Christ as your, as your Savior, you can partake. And there's nothing special about the bread, and there's nothing special about the cup. But yet it is a testimony that God has radically transformed our life from where we were and to remember his death and his burial and resurrection. But it's also a reminder for us that if we're not walking right with the Lord, that we should not partake. It's a time that we need to put our eyes back upon the Lord because sin so easily entangles us. And we need to put our eyes back on Christ and to get that walk where it should be. And if you don't know Christ, well, you just need to let these go. You, can't, you should not partake because it, it's meaningless to you. And so we come to, to get ready so if the men can, can come forward. 
I apologize, I had like 50 verses to sort of cover. And so we come to, to partake at the table. It's a time in which the body of Christ is most pure because we examine our hearts. It's a time in which the Spirit moves to convict. It's a time in which the Spirit moves to bring people to faith because they see the reality through simple elements that Christ died in their place upon the cross. So let's pray. Father, as we sort of come before you now to partake with these simple elements, they represent a life being shed, a life that was given up for me, for you. He was our substitute. He became sin on our behalf because I could not match the law. And we thank you, Father, that the gift of salvation is, is offered, but it's not free because he died in my place. And that wrath that was destined to me was poured upon him. But thank you, Father, for the salvation that we have. Thank you for the salvation that you keep. Thank you for the empowering that you give to your people every day to know that we are here to be your representatives in a lost world. So, Father, use this time to bring your name glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.